From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Whirlpool's global cleanup plan, how to get suppliers to act on climate, educating consumers about the circular economy, and clean power for resilient cities. We are plugged in and switched on this week on 350. It's February 2nd, 2018. Welcome to this special Groundhog's Day episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me is Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather, you seeing your shadow? Oh, you know what? It's sunny, so I probably will. I'm not going outside, although I would love to go outside. It's, been, it's a lovely day here. I have no idea whether that means more winter. I still never got that straight after many decades. More winter. If, if they see your shadow, that's more winter. So, eat. Sorry about that. No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, we're usually good for one major major snowstorm in the in the middle of February, so at least. Uh, so. Well, I hope it's next week when you and I and about a thousand other people will be basking in the clear 84 degree skies of Phoenix, Arizona. I was wondering what I should be packing, so thank you for the weather weather forecast. I got to figure it out. Well, there won't be a drop of rain, and. Um, there will be a very warm climate and some very cool people. I can do my yoga out on the on the lawn at sunrise. Uh, you can, along with a lot of other people too. Um, no, this is this is great. I mean, we've been touting GreenBiz eighteen since probably the end of GreenBiz seventeen, um, but uh, it's going to be an epic week. I'm really excited about it. Uh, the program's great. We've got. Uh, the the biggest uh, group coming uh, and uh, a lot of cool side events are happening and um, you know it's just we're we're all ready and and it's you know the the team uh, the con- content team the event production team everybody on our team um, is just ready to go excellent yep I'm I'm raring to go just got all my panel outlines together. <laughs> All set. Check. And you're a step. You're a step ahead of me. I've got a little bit, a uh, little bit of work to do this weekend on that. But um, before we get into next week, let's talk about the current week in review. So Heather, let's start with a piece you did this week about Whirlpool and how they're using data. Uh, in some really interesting ways. Yeah, so I haven't had any opportunity to speak with this company before, so I, I did a very broad interview um, with Ron Vogelweed. He's the global sustainability director for, for this huge appliance company. Um, and what I was fascinated by was the way they use the local information um, sort of at, in aggregate, right? Um, they have actually a dashboard, you know, woo another dashboard. Um, but what fascinated me about this uh, were a couple things. Number one, it's from Schneider Electric. So you think, oh, they're doing energy management. Well, yes, but this data, the, the data that they're collecting is far beyond that. Many of the, uh, the advances they've made and, and the sort of goals they've actually 
pre-met, right? They've, they've done a whole bunch of things early have to do with waste. Uh, here's an example. I think uh, Whirlpool is about 70 manufacturing sites around the world. And they have this software at about 40 of them right now. And um, out of Ohio, they've got the three big plants in Ohio. They looked at the waste stream for corrugated cardboard boxes. So this is not the stuff that they use to ship out. Um, this is the stuff that's coming in. So any components that are going into the um, appliances that they're making there, all of the parts that they're accepting and so forth. How do you get rid of this stuff? And each of these facilities on its own was dealing with them in a different way. And, you know, and, and fine, great. Local plant managers, power to them. You know, they were doing a good job. However, they noticed by using this dashboard that the aggregate amount was 20 million pounds, like of corrugated cardboard. So, wow. Um, and they use that number to be able to go out and regionally renegotiate their uh, collection uh, arrangements. Uh, so instead of now considering that as a waste stream, they they looked at it and they said, hey, you know, you, you folks that are processing this stuff, we've got all this stuff for you. This is our resource. Here's a resource you can use. And so by doing this, they, they're going to save like a million. Boom. Right off the top of the, the operational. Yeah. yeah. But uh, explain me something here, Heather, because I don't understand how uh, this, it sounds like the kind of thing that uh, I know GM and a lot of other companies have been doing as part of their zero waste strategies. Where does the data come in that facilitates the, the in this case, the corrugated cardboard um, recycling? So every all of the plants are incented to offer this data. So it, it's very everyone's trained. It's not the sustainability team collecting it. Right. So there's lots of different data streams. So. The in like, let's use the example of this waste and and Whirlpool does have a um, they currently have a zero landfill waste strategy that's for 2022. So what each of the plants is doing is collecting the information about you know the different waste we call it waste streams that are coming in or going out of their facilities. There's you know in many cases there's like hundred a hundred at a specific facility um, and the Personnel in that facility are, in, you know, like I said before, motivated to share everything. So they're they're adding this data. They're they're reporting on it. They're collecting it. They're um, and declaring it. They're they're you know they're saying, hey, this is what we're collecting. You know, here's how we're separating it. Um, what are you guys doing? And so it is very much at the ground grassroots level, right? The 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 teams at these sites have been trained. It's it's a part, It's just part of the process, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. It's not like this outside thing. Um, there are other data, you know, so that's a, that's kind of a manual data stream. They do use this system to collect, um, information about energy and that's much more automated. So in that instance, they've got it almost on the uh, real time level. Um, and they're using it to understand the consumption of, of, um, of each of the sites. So I, I was actually surprised to learn that Whirlpool is actually one of the biggest, um, investors in on-site wind technology in the fortune 500 so i, I you know so they're, they're using so they have turbines on their facilities they have turbines on their facilities um one of the one in um uh, they announced a, a, a plan late last year to put three turbines uh in greenville ohio and that's going to be producing like 12 million kilowatt hours of power annually so it's not the entire it doesn't carry the entire load but it carries a good portion of the load and um, 
like I said, they're one of the biggest investors in wind technology. I like, who knew? I didn't know. I didn't know that. So, and, and just one other thing, the, the other area, you know, again, I, I always think of Schneider, Schneider Electric as a company that focuses on electricity, right? It's in the name. But the other place and the place where they're going to really spend time um, focusing in the next 12 to 18 months is using this system to track water usage, right? So here we got uh, one of the world's biggest washing machine companies, um, and they obviously have a big stake in um, water and, and what happens to water and how are they using water. I mean, in, in manufacturing situations, they're obviously testing the equipment, right? So they use water. How do you, how do you, are you going to use fresh water for that? Are you going to use water that's recycled? So there's a huge focus on better strategy there. And the, the system is going to be used more and more for that purpose. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to leave it with uh, some insight from Ron. He, we, we spoke at length and I'd like to leave you with a clip. Um, here's Ron Vogelweed on the water strategy of Whirlpool. What we're seeing is, you know, energy processes, you know, whether it be injection molded, thermal forming, whatever, and stamping that use energy, um, there tends to be a high focus on it. There's a lot of investment and innovation in the space, even by our suppliers who, who supply the equipment, or in some cases where we make our own, uh, like in Europe, where we've, we've learned over time how to continue to reduce those on energy because it's easy to understand the power <laughs> requirements because you have to specify that when you put in the machine. Um, that's not so much the case when it comes to water. And uh, it's, it's both a huge issue, quite frankly, this undervaluation of water because of its, I would say, non-consistent nature, right? Um, whether, you know, depending on where you get your resource from. And so I think from a water perspective, we've done a, a great job as a team to understand, and this is where the tool helps you understand how much you are actually using and then how much you're actually recycling, where those sources are coming from, and how can we reduce the impact. Like I said, a lot of our facilities are in areas uh, a small you know, communities, so our effect on, on water resources on a local basis are going to be very profound. And so it may not cost a lot, it may be subsidized or whatever, but we are very cognizant of how do we make sure we provide that in the best way. And so, you know, we've had examples, you know, historical examples like our Amana facility where we also provide uh, even municipal water services for the city um, because of that, that direct relationship between, you know, what we do and, and the impact in the community. Uh, or in water-stressed areas where we have 100% recycling, like in a facility in Brazil where, you know, there's, you know, there's rainy seasons, dry seasons, and there's a huge impact to the, to the local community that we operate in uh, from a water perspective. So for, for me, water is one where you're not going to see the immediate business case and how you do things, but there's also a right way to do the right things. And I think this is where we have a very authentic approach um, in a culture, quite frankly, that makes my job much easier because they live in the communities, they're small communities, they see the impacts, they understand uh, the importance of water. We just have a much, you know, and our products rely on water sources like washers and dishwashers to operate. I think we have a, a, a much higher clarity um, and vision around how do we address water how do we continue to make huge strides or gains in, in resource efficiency? How do we take advantage of local on-site resources? So we've implemented rainwater catchment systems in Brazil uh, that we've now translated to India with huge success. 
Um, and then also water recycling. We've, we've done, like I mentioned, a mana that we've, we're learning how to, how to replicate in other areas as well. Uh, even down to stuff in our product development testing where we've implemented water recycling for the testing. Everybody's like, oh, it's great. You test washing machines, but you're using a ton of water. Well, we're actually implementing systems where we'll start to, to recycle those, and now we've transferred some of that same knowledge to recycling water for the testing we do online for our dishwasher plant in Finley, Ohio. So it's those kind of things where it's, you know, things we learn in product development being a water products company, if you will, in some respects in, in what we do with some of our products that use water. Um, it gives us some unique perspectives on how to manage it, uh, even on a commercial or a local scale. And, and quite frankly, I think it's just going to be a huge topic, you know, as I sit on the Alliance for Water Efficiency as a, as a board of director and speaking with over, we have 400 members of, of water utilities across the U.S. and in doing work even on a global basis, it's just amazing how somewhat distorted the, the reality is between infrastructure, cost, and, and distribution of water that um, that's, that's a, a huge issue for us just as a company and the products we make, but it's a huge issue for people in general, and we need to be mindful of that. And so I think what we've taken is a very proactive approach uh, as you see, we had the huge gains in that area, and I, I think it really comes down to this this ability to translate our already you know high knowledge on energy and water our water efficiency and energy efficiency in our products, where we made huge strides. That culture goes all the way down into uh, the manufacturing. So Whirlpool is a great example of a company that's doing some things behind the scenes. Doesn't have a lot to do with the products they sell, it's just how they run their operations. And we have another great story about that this week. In fact, we're sort of moving over from white goods to green goods at Whole Foods Market. See what I did there? Um, and Cassandra Sweet has a piece on how Whole Foods is using thermal batteries it stores in California and Hawaii to cut its energy bills uh, and emissions specifically using frozen tanks of salt water to store cooling energy to keep food cool for as long as eight hours in place of electricity. I mean, that is, I have to say it, very cool. <laughs> oh, yay, a good pun. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I was fascinated by this piece as well because you know we all get so excited over lithium ion batteries as the energy storage of the future right but there is a lot of really practical work being done with um, thermal storage of this nature so the idea that you can freeze freeze this stuff and then the water as it unfreezes you know handles handles certain things um, certain applications and and it's a, it's a strategy that comes from like the you know the heating ventilation and air conditioning industry so it makes sense for uh, grocery stores, for uh, organizations that have to keep uh, food fresh. You know, and in the case of Whole Foods, you know, if they lose power, it's a big problem. So it's it's, it's also for them, it's a resilience strategy. Um, you know, it's you, you know, and, and it makes and to go back to the the example of Whirlpool a moment ago, it just makes sense <laughs> at an operational level. So that is the way that um, the global energy coordinator is helping get you know, get buy-in at the different sites. So just to get into a little bit uh, of the weeds here, they work with a company called Axiom Energy. Um, Axiom has these saltwater tanks. It's a system called Ice on Coil. Um, it's sort of very similar to what we use, as you said, in HVAC and specifically in air conditioning. 
And so each of the tanks is filled with hundreds of yards of thin plastic tubing that are submerged in the salt water. And at night, when energy is cheap, electricity is cheap, the tanks are charged. Just they it sends a coolant liquid through the tubes, which generates ice around the coils. And then the tanks store the ice until they're needed for cooling. Uh, and at which time the switch releases warm water through the tubes, melting the ice, and, and then and that creates cold air for cooling. And then it just you know repeat the following day. Again, this is very much how uh, they build Ice Energy is a company that does this for similar thing for uh, building air conditioning, where it uses cheap energy at night to to make ice that then cools the building during the day. Um, and uh, takes advantage of the fact you know that we've written about and that. People who know electricity uh, know this, um, that these power plants run 24-7, and, and so they're generating the same amount of power uh, all day and night, and at night, not that many people are using it, and so the, it, it's much cheaper and, and available, so why not use that cheap energy to do work that otherwise would need to be done during the day? Um, I love this. Uh, it's just a in a few stores now, but I hope this really catches on. And by the way, you mentioned several, several sectors. The other big one are, is healthcare and hospitals to keep medicines cool. That's a, it's a huge need for that, and that's a, it's a big energy sink for them. So there's a lot of applications here for this. Absolutely. So the final story I'd love to bring up this week is uh, one that has to do with the circular economy, but it's not necessarily what companies are doing to um, educate their suppliers or to change their own manufacturing process. It's how they can help educate consumers. I, I've just, I, this story really struck me because, uh, and then the, the headline for, for those of you listening is these standards will help consumers develop circular know-how. So the thing that really struck home for me, literally, it was, uh, you know, I had a conversation I had with my husband. We were looking at a piece of plastic um, earlier this week, and we were trying to figure out if it was one of the, the pieces that we could recycle or, or could we, you know, how could we deal with it and dispose of it? And we just, we couldn't figure it out. And so, you know, we, in, in, in inside the industry, talk about the circular economy and how important it is and, the, you know, a much better approach to the linear economy. That And yes, absolutely. However, we are already uh, really falling down on helping the people that consume understand, you know, how to think about the goods they're buying, how to think about the whole take, you know, make, take, waste, whatever the 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 the, the triangle of of usages. So for um, for me, the fact that uh, there is a now a publication, the, the International Standards Organization (ISO) um, has actually uh, published something called the Sustainable Procurement Standard and. Um, certainly a guide for um, uh, corporate buyers, right? So the, the, the focus is helping uh, companies understand what goods and services might um, be the best to invest in from a sustainability standpoint, you know, what, what products are the ones to purchase, but also, um, you know, gives guidance to product designers, manufacturers, and so forth on how to talk to, the, to, to their customers about this. And so again, I, for me, the, the thing that really struck home was the fact that we are just really, uh, collectively, the industry is doing a really bad job at educating consumers um, on how to handle stuff. Yeah, I'm into that. I mean, one of the th really interesting things about the circular economy, and I've, I've been saying for a few years now that the circular economy is, I think, one of the most interesting and, and impactful things going on in sustainable business because... 
a company can't do it alone. A company wants to develop a circular product or service, it has to engage its entire value chain from designers and material sourcing all the way through manufacturing and customer use. And so it's also really important that most people don't appreciate that circular economy isn't just about recycling 2.0. It's about product longevity, product utilization rates, the sharing economy. It's about using renewable inputs or, or like renewable energy and bio-based inputs. And that re will often require the customer, whether it's a, a consumer or B2C or B2B, to maybe do things diff differently, use it differently, understand it differently, certainly take care of it differently at the end of its useful life or at the end of need, end of want, end of desire. And so there's a lot of education here. There's a lot of rethinking how we do things because we're this this take, make, waste, linear thing. I mean, it's not just the manufacturers uh, and, and retailers that have uh, perpetuated that. We all have done that as well as consumers. We know how to you know buy something, use it, and get rid of it one way or another. And so we're going to have to be brought into this closed loop and do things differently. So, you know, how do you, as a company, get consumers or businesses, your customers of any type, to understand this? So I think this is really interesting that ISO has is coming up with the, this uh, product use instruction guide to help um, companies help their customers um, close the loop in, in all the ways that the, the circular economy does. And just, I'd like to offer just one final word on this because like consumers, as I mentioned before, it's, it's you and me consumer, but also corporate consumer. So I'd just like to point to another bonus piece, if you will, um, how to get suppliers to act on climate that we ran this week. And it's um, some really good CDP data on, um, you know, which companies do a really good job at guiding their, their procurement teams on on what to buy so uh, who comes up in the top apple microsoft there's a lot of names here you'd know but all, uh, some some you may not know as well but society general um ajino ajinomoto um so i would would love i think um, i want to just direct um anyone who's involved with corporate uh, procurement to this story i think it's worth looking at and thinking about um as well Hi, it's Joel again. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you'll check out Center Stage, our new podcast featuring live interviews from GreenBiz events. You'll find conversations with notables like Paul Hawken, Annie Leonard, Janet Napolitano, and executives from a wide range of companies. Check it out. Go to greenbiz.com slash center stage or wherever you get your podcasts. NRG, the large independent power producer based in Princeton, New Jersey, has just published a white paper, Powering Sustainable Cities, looking at the key trends and pathways for success for city leaders. It's a topic that's of growing interest to city executives and elected officials around the world as they seek to address climate goals while cutting costs, and in many cases, improving local air quality as well. We'll link to the white paper on the 350 webpage. To learn more about it, I dialed up NRG sustainability specialist Dylan Siegler, who authored the white paper. Hey, Dylan. Hey, Joel. Good to be back on the podcast. Yeah, welcome back. So tell me why you and NRG were publishing this white paper and, and why now? 
Well, as listeners to your podcast and fans of GreenBiz no doubt know, interest in renewable energy and other sustainable power solutions is really high among corporates and among homeowners and has been for years now. But in 2016 and 2017, the NRG Sustainable Energy Advisory really saw cities and other public sector entities, so um, counties, public universities, even airports, um, really starting to take the lead in addressing how to meet their energy needs sustainably. So um, as you mentioned, in a lot of cases, there's climate goals that require a more sophisticated sustainable energy approach to succeed. Um, So cities have started reaching out more and more to NRG to help them pick through this um, really broad universe of options and create a roadmap that is appropriate for their context. So I wrote this white paper to kind of put all in one place at a really high level what we've learned from our work in the public sector. And um, then I um, interviewed professionals working in the field as a way to check my assumptions. Yeah, I was surprised at how many options I wasn't aware of, of some of them. I knew about community choice aggregation and community solar. I didn't know about district scale energy supply systems, equitable energy supply. So I'm guessing a lot of this is pretty opaque to city officials. Yeah, well, you know, there's um, there's a an increase in sophistication among these these public sector folks. But um, something that we're really seeing that's remarkable is that the public sector is kind of refusing to just accept what's thrown at them. Um, there's, as you mentioned, a ton of different options um, in this uh, in this world to, for them to engage with all of these rapid advancements in technology from from blockchain to, um, you know, it's a, it's a dizzying assortment of energy solutions to choose from when folks start to try and address their climate impacts. And we see the opportunity for communities in matching an appropriate solution or, or really likely a suite of solutions to their context. So sometimes they come to us for support there, but what we're seeing is a, a ton of sophistication as those communities take matters in their own hands. They, they're they really working to create the energy world they want to see. So it's been really interesting to watch some communities, you know, in the, in the case of Boulder, um, Boulder is breaking away from their incumbent regulated utility. Other communities are working community choice aggregation to um, you know, kind of take, again, take into their own hands their energy futures, actively working to change policies from the local to the regional level. Um, These are big league responses that are being put in motion by a really sophisticated public sector sustainability community that kind of sees this um, ocean of potential options and says, uh, yeah, bring it. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because all of this is happening as the energy landscape itself is shifting, disrupting even, um, that must create both barriers and opportunities. It does. Um, And in the paper, I tried to organize the context of this disruption in kind of three scales. So um, at the largest level, the kind of global and national scale, and then moving downward, the regional scale, and then the really local community scale. But the reality is that it, it all starts when we zoom out even farther 
into the atmosphere. The crisis of climate change has really created this disruption in which um, political leaders globally, right down to individuals in their neighborhoods, are searching for solutions. And that's created this really fertile ground for collaboration um, that brought us, you know, COP21 Paris Agreement. It brought, you know, in my own city of Austin, it brought us um, really sophisticated climate action. At the same time, so that, you know, I would say that fertile ground is an opportunity, but at the same time, these rapid advancements in technology, um, whether it's the impact of natural gas extraction techniques on fossil fuel prices, so that's brought natural gas prices way, way down, to something like um, a peer-to-peer electricity trading scheme that might be available at the household level. This has given communities, you know, as I've mentioned, all of these opportunities to um, engage, that can be seen as an impediment, but I see it as an opportunity um, they, for, you know, folks to really start to implement these technologies and, um, and work together as communities to meet their climate goals. So, so far you've mentioned two markets, Austin and Boulder, and, you know, obviously those are University towns, probably fairly liberal. Is that where this is going on, or is this also going on across, uh, uh, at least in the United States, uh, across a range of kinds of communities and political environments? I'm really glad you brought that up because I wouldn't want anyone listening to this interview to leave it thinking that only um, communities with municipally owned electric utilities like um, Boulder will be and like Austin is, have the opportunity to engage in sustainable energy. Um, something that at NRG we're really passionate about is the possibilities inherent in competition. So I think, um, you know, one of the really big trends that I'm seeing is the continuing decentralization of power marketing. So in the paper, I cover the Brooklyn microgrid. So again, it's a peer-to-peer sustainable electricity sales scheme. And that's just the beginning for tools like this. Uh, community choice aggregation and other types of schemes of that, of that nature really bring the ability to make your electricity choices right down to your, your personal level. We see competition as really key to that. So um, competitive markets all around the country are are ahead of the curve in being able to bring their communities lots and lots of different options. So where is this going? I mean, what are some of the sustainable power questions that the public sector is going to be engaging with in the, in the next uh, few years? I think one of the big uh, things that we're going to be dealing with as a nation and as sustainability professionals is the, the issue of equitable energy supply. So how do cities extend all of the cost and health and um, carbon benefits of cleaner electricity to communities that have historically been left out of this kind of advance? So um, New York, uh, New York City and Portland are two cities that are really leading the way here. Great. Well, lots more to talk about on this. And, and I think there's a just packed full of information powering sustainable cities. A white paper from NRG. Uh, Dylan Siegler is sustainability specialist. Thanks for doing that. And thanks for talking to us, Dylan. Thanks for having me, Joel.
Retirement is known as the golden years, but more than half of Americans have less than $10,000 saved to get them through 20 plus years or who knows how long, hopefully a long time. The World Business Council for Sustainable Development aims to change that dynamic by encouraging companies to link their retirement funds more explicitly with corporate sustainability goals. The idea is to get more businesses offering 401k or pension fund options that explicitly prioritize environmental, social, and governance goals. Associate Editor Anya Hallmarzer has the scoop in why it's time to align retirement funds with sustainability goals. Hello, Anya. Welcome. Hi, Heather. What's inspiring this initiative? Research has shown that people are just not investing enough in their retirement funds. So there needs to be an overarching incentive for people, especially millennials, who are less likely to save than any other generation, to override these short-term stressors and obstacles like student loans or debt in order to think long-term. And at the same time, there is an enormous opportunity for companies to invest more in ESG. And this is what is called the blind spot for companies. And WBCSD, or World Business Council for Sustainable Development, has identified in its new initiative called Aligning Corporate Retirement Plans with Corporate Sustainability Commitments, how to bridge that gap. Their goal is to move, aspirational goal, is to move $10 billion of assets under management into ESG-themed retirement benefit accounts by 2020. It's, of course, a small drop in the bucket when it comes to the trillions of dollars that really need to be invested in clean energy, renewables, and other ESG motives, but it's an evolutionary step for ESG funds. I spoke with Alex Bernhardt, head of Responsible Investments at human resources firm Mercer, to talk about why this is a win-win for companies and employees and why now is the time to move retirement funds towards ESG. Responsible investment has been around for a long time. It's it's not necessarily a, a new a new movement or or sub industry of, of the overall investment industry, if you will. It it, it has its it traces its most most recent manifestations in, in in history to socially responsible investing, which is really aligned with a lot of divestment exercises in, in history. So the anti-apartheid movement and uh, anti-tobacco, and now most recently sort of anti-fossil fuels. Those have all it's all uh, been been large divestment campaigns focused on taking securities out of portfolios and trying to align portfolios with social social values. Uh, generally speaking, the, the responsible investment community has evolved from that uh, SRI or socially responsible roots to to those from those roots to some uh, to more of what's called ESG integration or environmental, social, and governance. Uh, factor integration into investment programs, uh, and the, while they, where the aim of, of, of SRI investing might have been to align portfolios with values, ESG integration is much more focused on value creation and and driving uh, risk-adjusted return, long-term risk-adjusted return performance in in investment strategies. Uh, and and what we're seeing is is a huge global adoption of this concept of ESG integration of ESG investing. Uh, we've we've got the UN PRI, which is a, a signatory group. Uh, all, all the members of the of the PRI, uh, which stands for the Principles for Responsible Investment, all of them assert that they believe ESG factors can uh, drive risk-adjusted returns over the long term. Uh, and and then 
uh, also commit to integrating those ESG factors into their investment programs. And to date, investors controlling over $70 trillion worth of assets have now signed the PRI on a global basis. Uh, the, the U.S. is somewhat underrepresented in, in, that, uh, in that mix, uh, but we're starting to see that change. You know, more U.S. investors are starting to join the PRI and starting to look at ESG integration uh, seriously as, as a means of, of really improving their overall investment program uh, performance. So why now? Why, why is it simpler for companies to invest in ESG retirement funds now versus in the past? So there is a legal roadblock that was lifted fairly recently in 2015. The Department of Labor stopped basically discouraging plan sponsors from investing in ESG environmentally or socially targeted funds. Before, there was this view that ESG funds would sacrifice performance and returns. But at this point, there's enough momentum and evidence showing that ESG funds actually help mitigate risk and perform well or even better over time, as well as doing a social good. So that opened the door for companies to invest towards the sustainable development goals or align themselves with the United Nations principles for responsible investment commitments while also performing their fiduciary duty to maximize returns and provide a stable benefit plan for their employees. And here's Alex talking about why now is a good time for money to be shifted towards ESG retirement funds. The primary consideration for retirement plan sponsors is in the U.S. Is, is that they perform their fiduciary duty, which is often interpreted in the U.S. as, as maximizing outcomes for, for beneficiaries. We think that ESG integration is fully in line with that fiduciary duty, that it can actually drive uh, risk-adjusted returns over the long term. Uh, and so there's, there's, this is part and parcel of, of achieving that, of achieving that long-term goal. Uh, and so uh, there's, you know, obviously it takes time for new, new approaches to investing to, to take hold, and, and we're starting to see that happen now in the, in the U.S. And so we're at early days of, of adoption of ESG investing, but we're, we're moving towards, uh, towards more. And so uh, this is not only driven, though, by this performance benefit or this, uh, this idea of the potential for, for outperformance with ESG integration, but also by a number of ancillary considerations, such as the ability to align your 401k plan or your defined benefit pension plan uh, with a broader corporate sustainability strategy. There are trillions of dollars of retirement assets invested in, in the U.S. market with, through corporate or ERISA plans, uh, and very few of those those dollars have actually considered the environmental, social, or, or governance impact that they're having. And there's a real opportunity here for retirement plan sponsors to take a take a harder look at their investment programs and and, and figure out how to incorporate those ESG considerations into their into their plan design and achieve ultimately achieve some of the sustainability goals that they're trying to achieve. Many of them are trying to achieve in their businesses. So this all sounds conceptually wonderful. I'm just curious, you know, you, you mentioned before, and we mentioned, we know that people aren't putting enough money away for their retirements. Do you think, or what, what is the outlook on how this shift in focus could potentially uh, in, increase contributions? Is, is it going to make a difference? What are, what are people saying? Surveys show that 60% of employees, that's across generations and genders, would contribute more towards retirement if their fund was doing a social good. 
especially millennials, 90% of whom would contribute to their retirement funds if they knew that they were building a future that they could live in while saving up for it. And there's $8.4 trillion in the U.S. corporate defined contribution plans um, today, but a very small percent capitalizes on this. And the ESG market is growing, so right now is a good time to invest as research and evidence shows that ESG funds do perform well over time. Shareholder advocacy group, as you saw, even showed a case study um, about a real estate company that offered high-performing ESG funds. These are fossil fuel-free funds. And when they started doing this, their participation rates for employees in defined contribution plans jumped from 14% to 95% in two years. So you're kind of doing the social good, getting people to invest while also helping companies align their investment plans with their sustainability goals and moving the world towards a more renewable energy future. So the seemingly unlikely combination of retirement plans, investing, and ESG really do create a perfect fit. And Alex also spoke more about whether this will really be good for retirement plan beneficiaries in the long term. We believe over the long term, incorporating ESG considerations into your fund selection process will lead to your long-term value add. Uh, we also think there's a real a real opportunity for businesses which are sustainability minded already in their in their general operations to consider sustainability in their investment programs as well. Oftentimes that uh, that isn't happening now and, and and there's a real opportunity to align overall corporate strategy uh, around sustainability uh, with with the retirement funds in in say a, a DC plan. Um, defined contribution plan. Uh, and one of the benefits of that, well, there's multiple benefits of that, but, but one is potentially improving or increasing your ability to have an impact on the sustainability related issues that, that you're already trying to have an impact on in, in your broader business. Uh, and then the other, perhaps more, more uh, tangibly, uh, are drivers that it can potentially improve retirement outcomes, meaning that it, by engaging participants more in their in their retirement plans, getting them to pay more attention to how their how their money is invested, uh, it can result in higher savings rates and and better long term retirement outcomes. As listeners of this podcast are painfully aware, we have been talking about Green Biz 18 coming up next week in Phoenix, Arizona for, oh, let's say the last two or three months. And we've talked a lot about the program, some of the great people who are going to be there, but we haven't talked as much about all the other events. And I thought to do that, I would bring in Green Biz Conference Director, the impresario behind Green Biz 18, the sort of the wizardess behind the curtain, Ellie Beekner. Hi, Ellie. Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me with you. One of the things we're doing this year, and we did last year as well, and there's a video about this up on greenbiz.com, is creating a zero-waste conference. Talk a little bit about how we're doing that, who you're working with. Yeah, zero waste is incredibly important to us for our conferences, not just for GreenBiz, but for all of our events. Um, Waste management is a huge partner of ours. We couldn't do it without them. So they're really running our whole zero waste program. Um, And then we also have a couple of other partners supporting us. Um, Copia is helping us with our food donation. 
will be sending our uneaten food to local charities in the Phoenix area. And we're also working with TerraCycle on our hard to recycle items to try to increase our landfill diversion rates. So what's some of the tricks I and mean, what are some of the things you've learned that you wouldn't have thought of that helps get to a zero waste conference? Communication is a really huge piece of it. Um, communicating with the venue, making sure their staff are trained. I would say that that's a really critical part of it. And then also communicating with our partners and exhibitors on site. Um, Our sponsors and exhibitors have been great partners to us in making their spaces as sustainable as possible, not bringing too many things, and really thinking through how they set up their booths and what materials they bring. So we didn't get to 100 last year. We got, I believe, to 97.3%. Pretty close. What are you thinking we're going to get to this year? I'm hoping it's 100. (laughs) We definitely identified some um, areas for improvement. I think TerraCycle will be able to help us with some of these this year. There are always some hidden things that you can't anticipate. For example, sterno cans are really challenging to recycle. Um, And then uh, bathroom waste, if there's not a proper hazardous materials bin, that makes it difficult to compost um, paper towels. So those are two areas that we're focused on for this year. Great. So that's the zero waste part of the program. What are some of the other activities? We've got some parties, networking events. Give us a little bit of a rundown of some of the things you're excited about. Yeah. So one thing that we love about being in Phoenix is the access to the outdoors and the beautiful desert landscape. So we have, we're, we'll be doing our biomimicry hike again, which is always a big favorite. Um, so be sure to sign up for that. And we are also this year adding a native landscape planting um, with our partners at American Forests. So that is another great outdoor activity. Beyond our outdoor activities, um, we have some great networking activities planned. Networking is always such an important part of the event. We'll have ASU hosting their annual sustainability solution celebration, which all attendees are invited to join on Wednesday night. Um, that is always a great time. Um, Dow is also hosting our opening networking reception on Tuesday night. Um, and we are also back this year with more uh, guru lunches than ever um, due to popular demand. And we'll also have our normal network working breaks throughout the program. Can you explain what a guru lunch is? A guru lunch is a um, small group discussion moderated by an expert or leader in the space. So they're really meant to be very conversational around specific topics of interest and not only help you learn from an expert, but also help you connect with other attendees over topics that you're really focused on. So those are some of the extra activities beyond the conference itself, but the conference itself is taking a little bit of a different shape this year. Yeah, based on feedback we've received, we are really ramping up our breakouts program to really make your time on site extremely actionable um, and help you come away with tangible outcomes that you can apply to your work when you go back on Monday. So we've shifted the program a little bit and also to enable people to kind of mingle a little bit more, get up and move, break up the program a little bit. So we're trying out this new format and we're really excited to, to see how it goes. And then there's a bunch of partner events too. What's going on there? Yeah, we have been doing a convening partner program for the last few years, and we greatly appreciate the support of our partners. Um, GRI will be hosting their annual symposium on Monday, February 5th, prior to the start of the conference. So um, check out our website for more details on that. Our partner, World Business Council for Sustainable Development, will also be hosting their annual meeting um, on the Monday before, and details for that are also available on our website. And then Refed, Rethinking Food Waste Through Economic 
Economics and Data is also holding an event on site um, that Monday. So we're, we're thrilled to have all of our partners there with us, really helping to make our attendees' time on site as valuable, useful, and beneficial as possible. Well, it's going to be a great week, and if you can't make it, there'll be a live stream. We'll send you the link to that. And next year's event is February 26th through 28th, again, back in Phoenix. Ellie Beekner, Green Biz Program Director. It's going to be great fun. We'll see you in Phoenix. Thank you so much, Joel. Look forward to seeing you there. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization stories and other, other things we've mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, look for a link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can hit us up by email at 350greenbiz.com. We always love your feedback and ideas. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. We'll be back next week. From GreenBiz18 in Phoenix, Arizona. I look forward to seeing you in person, Heather, for another edition of GreenBiz350. Till then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>